Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Zach Ibrahim. Zach is the son of a terrorist. His early memories were of a happy childhood and a warm and funny father. This all changed when his dad lost his job and fell into a deep depression. He began spending all of his time at a mosque in New York, where the daily message was that the American government was a threat to Muslims both here and abroad. Young Zach was suddenly told to fear almost everyone he encountered, and his lighthearted father was now fueled by hatred. At the age of seven, Zach's life changed forever. His mother was watching TV when it switched to breaking news and she saw her husband covered in blood. That night, he was arrested for his role in the assassination of the head of the Jewish Defense League. This would not be his father's last act of terror. While serving time in jail for the assassination, Zach's father was secretly planning the World Trade Center bombings of 1993. This day of terror would take six lives and injure over a thousand people. In the years that followed, Zach, his mom and siblings would move over 20 times on the run from their father's past and constantly living in fear of their safety. As a teenager, Zach began befriending the very people he was taught to hate. He even found a mentor in a little-known late-night comedian, John Stort, who he credits with helping to reshape his worldview. He was also bullied during this time, which he now says is the thing that taught him empathy. It was during these years that he left the lessons of his early childhood behind. He moved away from hatred and isolation, changed his name, and became an empathetic inclusive and loving person who fought for nonviolence and peace. Today, we talk about the roots of terrorism, the walls that divide us, the opportunities to break them down, the weight of secrecy, the complexities of forgiveness, and how our past do not, in fact, have to define our future. Here's today's conversation with Zach Ibrahim. Hello, Zach, and welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you so much for having me. I want to set time and place for our listeners because I don't know what date this will air. But today is March 24th, and it happens to be your birthday. So happy birthday to you, Zach. Thank you. And it is also about, I guess, a week and a half, two weeks into our country being hugely impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. And thank you for making the time in the midst of everything that is happening in the world. I know your intention is to share your story with the hopes that it will provide a sense of hope that people can come out the other end of difficult things. Honestly, I can't think of a better way to spend quarantine or 12 days in now, you know, just spending a lot of time at home. Uh, I think this is a, a wonderful way to spend that time. I couldn't agree with you more to be able to have meaningful connections when we're so disconnected in a sense. So this is a good thing to be doing today. All right. Well, I want to dive in to the conversation that we're here to have today and start, if you will, telling me about the backdrop of your childhood and some of the early memories you have of your mom and dad. 
Sure. Well, you know, I was born in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1983. And our family was a, a pretty normal middle class family. You know, of course, I knew we weren't exactly like the average American family. We spoke Arabic in the house. I, I called my father Baba instead of dad. So there were these little things that, you know, kind of made you aware that your family wasn't the prototypical uh, American style family. But nonetheless, we were, you know, pretty happy and, and content family. My father worked and my mother actually dropped out of college to take care of the three of us, her three children. And, you know, I'd say most of our early years were pretty great. My, my first memory that I can remember was of a trip we all took to Kennywood Amusement Park in Pittsburgh. And I just remember my father being very playful and wanting to make us laugh. And, you know, I have a lot of memories like that before, before things started to change. And when did things begin to change and how would you describe that change? I would say things really started to change when I was about seven years old. My father had been injured in a work accident and had severe burns on his arms. He was unable to work, unable to provide for his family. And my mother would tell me that he was sent home from the doctor's office with painkillers and antidepressants and became very withdrawn. He started spending less time at home and more time at a particular mosque in New York where the blind Sheikh Omar Abdurrahman was preaching. The blind Sheikh was one of the most central figures in the jihadi movement worldwide going on at the time. So he was a very influential figure, very charismatic man, spoke with a lot of emotion. And I think my father was in a vulnerable position mentally at the time. He took a big hit to his pride. We had to go on food stamps and this wasn't the position that he was used to being in. So I think he was in a, a particularly vulnerable position. But I, I don't want to make it sound like he didn't know what he was doing or that he was taken advantage of. My father had so many opportunities to change the course of uh, the direction that his life was taking. But he made a concerted effort to maintain an alliance with this group of men, and, and that, that would ultimately lead to him spending the rest of his life in prison. So you spoke to this change in your father. What were some of the beliefs and ideas that not only are your father, I know your uncle, are starting to be modeled at home and to his son and nephew? Well, this was the late 80s, very early 90s, and the Afghan war was going on at the time. There were many Muslims from all over the world who were going to Afghanistan to fight the Soviet Union. My father very much wanted to go fight in this war. And like any wife, my mother was opposed to the idea. He even brought my grandfather from Egypt to the United States to try and convince him to take my family to Egypt so that my father could go fight in this war. And my grandfather basically told him, absolutely not. Your family is your responsibility. Uh, if you want to make jihad, stay here and take care of them. And I, I tell this story all the time whenever I, I speak. And, and I take that word jihad and I try to highlight it and, and show that you know it doesn't necessarily have to mean an act of violence. It can literally mean taking care of the things that you are responsible for. And that was the lesson that my grandfather was trying to impart on my father, was that your responsibility was with your family, not with this, this movement. And my grandfather went back home, but my father continued to become more radicalized. You know, he would take us to listen to the blind sheikh give his sermon. And he used our own foreign policy, frankly, against us in the sense that he tried to convince his congregants that the United States was an enemy. You know, We were essentially taught to be fearful of almost anyone we interacted with and to assume that people we didn't know were actively trying to take us away from the faith. So it wasn't just that he imparted hateful ideas, um, creating stereotypes about people and you know, trying his best to isolate his community from interacting with those people. But he also made it a point to have this layer of fear of anyone you know, who he didn't approve of directly. And by listening to them, by befriending them, by even interacting with them, you put yourself at risk of eternal damnation. 
Do you remember feeling that way too? This is sort of all you really know and is around you. Do you remember your feelings at that time? Well, that's the thing. When you're seven, you don't really have the intellect, the experience to challenge these kinds of things. You assume that what your parents are teaching you is not just good for you, but is the truth. So I didn't really have any any way of challenging or disproving what my father was saying. And in fact, it wasn't until many years later that I was able to leave much of the isolation that had surrounded me for for many years and actually interact with many of the people I'd been taught to hate. Those experiences were really the first hints to me that what I'd been taught wasn't true. And then that's one of the things that I really try to emphasize when I speak is just how important isolation plays in the radicalization process, but more importantly, how interaction can be used to mitigate that effect. You were seven years old on November 5th, 1990. What happened on this day? Well, it was a pretty normal day to begin with. Uh, My father went to work. He worked for the city. And I remember that night at dinner, he you know, didn't seem to have much of an appetite. He said that he was going to the mosque at some point. And you know, for the rest of the family, it was, it was a pretty normal night. I, you know, I did my homework. I watched some cartoons and, and I went to bed. And I was woken up a few hours later by my mother rushing into the bedroom. And she was, by the time I could open my eyes, she was already at my dresser grabbing clothes out pretty frantically and telling me to get up and to get dressed that we had to leave. I didn't really know what was going on. So I grabbed whatever I could carry that she handed me and went down to the living room and actually fell back asleep. And I woke up to my uncle being in the living room. He lived in Brooklyn, but he, uh, he had packed up his car with his wife and all of their kids and came to our apartment to pick up my family. And I still wasn't sure what was going on, but he was taking us back to his apartment in Brooklyn so that my mother, I would find out later, could go to the hospital to be with my father. She was watching television when we were all asleep, and the program she was watching was interrupted by breaking news. And it said that Rabbi Meyer Kahana, the leader of the Jewish Defense League, had been shot. And so did his assailant, and neither were expected to live. And they cut the footage of my father covered in blood being put into an ambulance. So this was her introduction, essentially, to the path that my father chose. Do you have siblings? Who is in the house at this time when your mom is watching your father covered in blood on the television screen? I do have two siblings, a brother and a sister. We were all in bed that night. And I know... After this, there's a series of things that happen that now involve the children, you being one of them. Talk to me about how the night unfolds after your mom sees your dad on TV. I don't recall if my uncle called her or if she called my uncle, but she asked him to come pick her up and the kids to take us to his apartment so that she could go to the hospital and be with my father. As far as she understood from the news, my father wasn't going to live, and she just wanted to be there with him when he died. He, She didn't want him to be alone. So my uncle comes, and, and my mother was quite annoyed because he didn't want to be in a car alone with a woman he wasn't married to. So it was a packed, packed car, and he drove us to his apartment in Brooklyn. So we come up the steps, and we enter the hallway where my uncle's apartment is, and there are two New York City detectives waiting at his door. My mother pleaded with them to let her use the bathroom, and she took my hand and tried to take me inside with her. But the detectives didn't want her alone in a locked room with a child. I think they were afraid maybe that she was going to try to do something to herself or to me. The detectives took my mother to Bellevue Hospital to see my father. By the time she arrived, there were a ton of reporters and news vans, and there was an enormous amount of police presence there. She told me that when she was escorted to my father's room, that he and Meyer Kahana were actually laying next to each other while they were operating, and that my father was swollen to twice his normal size. She took his hand and Although he wasn't conscious, she said, I'm, I'm here now, you can go. Kahana actually died that night at Bellevue Hospital, but my father lived. What do you remember experiencing emotionally 
you're a young kid, you're seven years old. And what do you remember? How did you experience that night? Mostly confusion. I really didn't know what was going on. I believe my mother told us that my father had been in some kind of an accident, but she didn't elaborate beyond that. And for the next several weeks, actually, my mother did everything she could to shield us from the news coverage. And you know, every time the news came on, she would usher all the kids out of the room. And you know, there were years later where I would try to ask her questions or something like that, but it was almost something I had to figure out on my own, which made it difficult for me. But you know, I couldn't blame my mother. She was certainly dealing with something she'd never anticipated ever having to deal with. And even as adults, my siblings and I, when we think about all of the things that my mother had to deal with as a result of my father's actions, we kind of shake our heads in amazement that she was even able to keep us together and roof over our heads. And we talked about the messaging of what your father was modeling to you. There was actions too. I believe weeks before he took you to a shooting range. Is that correct? Yes. And can you share that story? And I think there's a specific moment within that story it's really poignant. Yes. The night before we went, my father explained to me that he and a bunch of his friends had been going to the shooting range on Long Island for target practice. And he told me I'd be going with him the next morning. It was a long drive. I remember we got up super early and drove from our home in New Jersey to Calverton shooting range on Long Island. And a bunch of his friends were already waiting there, including my uncles and we walked up to a car they were all standing next to, and in the trunk were a whole bunch of different kinds of weapons. I had never shot a gun before. I'm not even sure that I'd ever seen a gun before that. And I wasn't the only child. There were you know, plenty of the other men brought their kids too, and, and they were essentially you know, teaching us target practice. So the first time I held a rifle to my shoulder, my father kind of helped me hold it and, and showed me how to aim at the target. And you know, frankly, it was a lot of fun. I, I was enjoying myself a lot. The men were also enjoying themselves. Um, my father took a fully automatic weapon and shot the legs out from under one of the larger targets and had it you know, caused it to come crashing to the ground. And the men all shouted and, and laughed about it. But by late morning, it began to rain, and I knew our time was was probably coming to an end. So on my last turn, the last bullet I shot hit the orange light that sat on top of the target and the light exploded. And I wasn't sure if I was in trouble or not, but my uncle turned to the other men and in Arabic said, Ibn Abu, like father, like son. And they all got a really big kick out of that joke. I, I didn't really understand you know, what he meant by that at the time, but I suppose later I, I understood it to mean that in some way I was exhibiting the same kind of zealotry that my father was. I know the night of the assassination, your dad would never return home. What were the charges against him and where was he imprisoned? Well, I would say first that we never returned home. Not only did my father never come home, but the night of the assassination was the, the last night that I ever saw our old home or any of our old possessions. We All we had was what we could carry. My father was charged with the assassination of Rabbi Meir Kahana. He was also charged with assault and weapons charges against other people who were trying to stop him, as well as a, a taxi driver. Mahmoud Abu Halima called my mother the night of the assassination asking where my father was. And the reason that he did that was because he was, according to the evidence that was later found about the plot, he was supposed to be waiting in a taxi outside of the Marriott Hotel where Kahana was assassinated for my father to come running out, jump in the taxi, and they were going to speed away. But while he was parked there, a police officer made him move a different taxi, pulled into the spot, and my father jumped into the wrong cab. According to the driver, my father flashed a gun at him and told him to drive. But there was a lot of traffic. My father eventually jumped out of the car and was confronted by a federal postal officer. They exchanged fire. They were both hit. My father was shot in the neck. And that was how he was ultimately apprehended. At what point do you realize that your father is, in fact, a murderer? And what do you remember about the first time you went to see him in prison? Well, I wouldn't find out until many years after I'd begun visiting him in prison that my father was actually guilty. But on my first trip to Rikers Island to visit him, 
this was the first time that I had seen him since the night he he left. And you know, it was a very it was a very strange day. We we again got up really early in the morning and jumped into our old wood paneled station wagon and headed to Rikers. And it was really foggy out. It was almost like the parking lot was shielded from the rest of the world. You couldn't even see outside of this large gray mass. And we took a bus across a bridge to the main facility where we were frisked and taken down a long hallway lined with cells. And a guard opened the door to one of the cells and I saw my father standing there in an orange jumpsuit. And he took his time giving each one of us a hug. And then we, we all sat down across from each other at the table. The first conversation that he had was exclaiming his innocence to my mother. And I think that was something she really needed or was waiting for. She wanted to hear from his own lips that, you know, whether he was innocent or not. And when he declared his innocence to her, she believed him. As a young boy with a father in prison, what is that? son to father experience. I imagine you miss your dad, you long for him. Do you still look up to him or just curious as a little kid what it's like to see your parents in an orange jumper within the walls of a prison? To say it's strange would be an understatement. Sometimes when I think back to memories before my father went to prison, I I still see him in an orange jumpsuit, even though I know that's not what he could have been wearing. It was also Strange because Ghana was the head of, according to the federal government, the head of the largest terrorist organization operating inside the United States at the time of his assassination. So while I thought my father was innocent, there were plenty of people both in and outside of the Muslim community who saw what he did as potentially a good thing. So it was very strange for a seven-year-old to hear adults justify some types of murder. So I told myself, well, he's innocent, but even if he did commit this murder, then Kahana deserved it. It wasn't until years after that, after the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993, my father's involvement in that plot, that that excuse no longer became viable. Innocent people were being targeted. I think my father and men like him bear a great responsibility for being able to be used by my own government, for example, as reasoning or justification for so many of the wars that we end up involved in. Uh, And in fact, that's one of the reasons that I got involved in the peace movement to begin with. You know, I I hadn't been sharing my identity. I changed my name when I was 16 to avoid people knowing who I was. But I saw the ways my own government was using stereotypes about Muslims. People I knew hadn't been subjected to the same sort of indoctrination that I had been to justify invading Muslim nations. I knew it wasn't true, and I wanted to do something about that. So I went out into the street like a lot of people did, and I protested the wars. And in those experiences, I I saw lots of instances where I thought perhaps if people knew my story, that not only was I raised Muslim, but more importantly than that, I was subjected to the precise ideology that so many people were fearful of, that I didn't become radicalized, that I was here promoting peace then what would that say about the vast majority of Muslims in the world? What would that say about the justifications for my own government, from my own government, being used to justify these wars? I want to go back to the World Trade Center bombing in 1993, which obviously historically most people in this country know about. Can you explain your father's relationship to that act of terrorism and... Also, I know some of the other men that carried this out, you knew. I did. I knew most of the men. Even after my father went to prison, a lot of them took it upon themselves to stop into our house to make sure that we had things that we needed. I think, well, I don't think I know that from his prison cell, my father implored these men to take similar actions that he took, telling them, I made my sacrifice. When are you going to make your sacrifice? And We would find out years after the World Trade Center bombing that these men were frequently visiting my father. They were plotting what would be known as the Day of Terror plot. And this was, their hope was to place bombs at up to a dozen different landmarks around New York City and have them go off seven minutes apart 
and create as much chaos as they possibly could. They were going to target the Holland and Lincoln tunnels, the UN, synagogues, basically trying to create as much chaos as possible, thereby creating as much carnage as possible. And it was through the work of an intelligence asset named Ahmed Salem, who infiltrated my father's group, that they were able to foil that plot. Unfortunately, they were still able to place this van filled with 1,500 pounds of explosives into the World Trade Center's North Tower. And that explosion killed six people and injured more than 1,000 others. I know there's an infamous video, one of his infamous video messages from Osama bin Laden that mentions your father by name. Can you tell me about that and what he said? Sure. Well, after 9-11, Osama bin Laden released a videotape telling people to remember Al-Sayed Nasser, remember my father, and to remember the sacrifices that he made, using my father and his actions to implore others to become involved in the jihadi movement. And not only that, but Osama bin Laden helped to pay for my father's defense fund. We didn't know it at the time, but my uncle actually traveled abroad to receive a check from him to help pay for funds. And you spoke to these other men involved and that they were stopping by your house, that these are men they knew and were in your community. And you've spoken to, and clearly Osama bin Laden years later, there was a lot of people within your community that considered your dad a hero. And to some extent, you were the son of a hero, the heir, if you will, and that at times people would address you in a different way because that. And then we'll talk about the opposite end of that, the the part of being ostracized because of your father. But what were those two experiences like in the wake of your father's actions? Well, again, I think the the word I would use is confusing. You know, I had just lost my father. I'd lost my home. I couldn't return to the public school that I was going to in Cliffside Park. My whole world had changed, and yet I had people coming up to me and and telling me that what my father did was was heroic. There was a, a particularly wealthy businessman in the community, and every single time I saw him for several years, he would hand me a $100 bill, me and my siblings. I bought my first Game Boy with a $100 bill that this man you know, gave me. So there were a lot of very strange mixed signals. To the other end of that, there were lots of people in the community who wanted nothing to do with not just my father, but my family because of what he represented because of the the vitriol directed toward the Muslim community because of what my father did. There were a lot of people who knew that men like my father not only gave a bad name to other Muslims, but because of their actions would bring violence against Muslims. And, you know, they were certainly, that would be borne out to be the truth in the end. Eventually you move, which would become the first of, I believe, 20 moves. So walk me through the arc of that time. First of all, why are you moving so frequently? Can you walk me through this time? A few months of staying with my uncle in Brooklyn. Eventually, we moved into an apartment in Jersey City. We averaged about every nine months, we moved to either a new apartment or a new town. And a lot of that was because my mother was worried for our safety. We received death threats because of what my father did. There were New York detectives watching us after the World Trade Center bombing. We had FBI agents coming to our house. You know, we thought our phones were tapped. My mother was really concerned about our safety. So for the first few years, we just moved to try and stay as anonymous as possible. During those years, we basically survived from donations that had been collected all around the world for, you know, the family of El Sayed Nasser. And once that money dried up. My mother had to go back to work. She was in the process of getting her degree in education when she dropped out to take care of my family. So she began looking for work as a teacher at private Islamic schools. We moved from one city to another with my mother teaching. I have a lot of, frankly, really great memories of spending time in her classrooms before and after class. And I, I credit my mother with my being able to even share my story. You know, she instilled in me from a very young age a love for reading and writing and 
I try to give her as much credit as possible whenever I talk to her about these things because I really don't think it would have been possible for me to get up on stage and share my story in a you know in a way that affects people if she hadn't given me such an incredible foundation to start off with. And I know at one point she had her own reconciliation about your father and about hate. Can you share that with me? Sure. Well, I would say first that my mother actually divorced my father not long after the verdict came down from the World Trade Center trial. So when it became clear to her that he wasn't innocent, that he indeed was involved very deeply in all of these acts, she was done with him and uh, and filed for divorce. When you and I spoke before this interview, you mentioned bullying to me several times and the impact that had on you during these years. Can you explain specifically what those experiences were? Well, thank you for bringing it up. I I love having the opportunity to talk about those experiences because, frankly, of, of everything that I went through in my childhood, being bullied was the thing that had the longest lasting negative effect on my sense of self-worth, you know, it, it was devastating for me. You know, I grew up very poor after my father went to prison. So I went to really bad schools and lived in really bad neighborhoods. And and I don't know if it was because I was quiet or, or chubby or, you know, all of the many reasons that kids decide to pick on each other. But but it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that of everything that I went through, bullying was was the most difficult experience for me to get through and get past. And, you know, I'll tell you a story. When I was 16 years old, I, through a college prep program, I was able to take part in the National Youth Convention that was going on in Philadelphia. And I joined a group of kids talking about youth violence in schools. That was something that I was, you know, very passionate about because I dealt with it so much. During this convention, I saw a young man who was maybe in his mid-20s get up on stage and start talking about his life. And he talked about growing up poor, being raised by a single mother, and being bullied really badly as a kid. And it was the first time in my life that I I thought there was another human being on this planet that understands what I've been through. And his lesson was essentially that it didn't always have to be this way, that your choices mattered. And having felt that for the first time, feeling like I wasn't alone. For years after that, I I took his stories and used them as a source of strength. So over the years, the things that I talk about have evolved. And while I still talk about my father and, and what it was like being indoctrinated into that ideology, I've really tried to focus on talking more about the struggles that I went through that that may be more typical at that youth convention. I tell this story all the time about this young man that I'd become particularly close with over the just the few days that we had been interacting together. We were part of this youth violence group, and we had about a, an hour of free time during one of the days. And we're, you know, a few of us are walking around Philadelphia, and we're just sharing some facts about ourselves, and we're talking about each other's religions. And he mentions that he's Jewish, and I was kind of surprised by that. I had never had a Jewish friend before, and. Frankly, the first feeling I felt was a, a great sense of pride because I thought I had done something that no one had ever done before, you know, which is, of course, ridiculous. But that's the way that living in an ideological bubble warps reality around your own perspective, warps your emotions around that perspective. And, you know, my whole life I'd been taught that not only were Muslims and Jews not friends, but we were natural enemies and that we would know that we were natural enemies from across the room without even interacting with each other. So I, it was the first time in my life I thought, huh, perhaps what I'd been taught wasn't true. And I held on to that experience, the, the interaction. And as I got older and, and had more independence and the opportunity to interact with others I'd been taught to hate, I think, frankly, because of the bullying, I learned a great deal about empathy, about being judged for things that were beyond my control. And that made me not want to treat others the way I had been you know, I had been treated. And to your question, I had a conversation with my mother not long after that about how my worldview was starting to change. And she said to me a phrase that I will hold dear to my heart for as long as I live. She, she looked at me and she said, I'm tired of hating people. And 
it wasn't just that you could see the toll of dealing with the fallout of my father's actions had on her, dealing with the death threats and the FBI and lawyers and the NYPD being ostracized from community after community. It was like she was giving me permission to go out into the world and experience people based on one-on-one interactions, that I didn't have to be so fearful of the next person coming around the corner. And really, from that moment on, I would liken it to taking a pair of sunglasses off. The world was a brighter place for me. That is why I put such a focus on talking about isolation and how important it is in radicalizing someone. You have to separate them from those you wish to teach them to hate in order to fill their minds with these stereotypes and these generalizations. And it is through interaction, through real-life experience, that we can counter that effect. It's one of my favorite parts of your message, and I think in practice could make the world a different place. There are so many others that I have talked to, former white supremacists, former gang members, former religious extremists, who talk about how exhausting it is having to hate everyone. And I I truly believe that if given the opportunity, the vast majority of people who do become fanaticized would gladly leave that ideology if they had the chance. And, and I think that that is you know, one of the things that we have to keep in mind constantly is our reaction to violent events. When a group like ISIS attacks a Western country or a Western city, they are not doing it because they believe themselves to be an existential threat to that government. They are doing it to create fear, and that fear sows division in those societies. It creates groups of people who then become fearful of each other based on really arbitrary measurements like the sound of our name or the length of our beard or the color of our skin. This is the goal of groups like ISIS. Knowing that, our reaction to these events becomes that much more important rather than building barriers or solidifying the barriers that these kinds of groups are trying to create or trying to maintain, we have to make just as much of an effort to reach out to one another, to create pipelines of communication. Your transformation was really an evolution. It evolved over time, but there were certainly some key moments, changing of your name and the point at which you began to share your past and share your secret. But I do have to to go back on one thing when you talk about relationships and connections, because I think there is a common thread here. When we've talked to people on this podcast who are experiencing severe trauma as a kid, that I've now realized several people have by name mentioned someone on television who in their minds, hearts and minds, created a relationship with. And to some extent, a paternal every time relationship with. And I know you had that experience and it just so happened to be a Jewish comedian. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like you said, at the age I was at, I would say 14, 15, 16, I was in desperate search of a father figure. And the male role models that I'd had in my life were just devastatingly negative. And at the time, I was a big fan of The Daily Show, which was hosted by Craig Kilborn. And one day, you know, it was one of my favorite shows, and I, I tune in and I find out that Craig is gone and there's this new guy named Jon Stewart. And I thought, oh man, he's going to ruin the show. Who is this guy? And, you know, Jon Stewart opened up my mind. He opened up my world to, he had a way of just stripping down so many of the arguments that I held you know, about gay people, about non-Muslims, about not just non-Muslims, but even Muslims in my own community. He had this, this way of keeping you intellectually honest. And he explained things in a way that made me kind of feel dumb for believing the things that I believed. You know, he was an absolutely pivotal role model to me in my youth. I, I, I was so happy that I could give him credit for it. It was really fundamental to the person that I would become. At 16, you decided to change your name. So what was your birth name and why at that moment did you decide to change it? I was born Abdelaziz Sayed Nasser. I was named after my grandfather. When I was 16, we changed our names to hide our identity, not just for, um, for anonymity's sake, but for safety's sake. How long did you carry the secret of your past and when and why did you decide to begin to share it? 
I spent years before I changed my name hiding my identity. But I, I felt after a few years, it was really difficult for me to figure out if the people that I'd befriended, people that I frankly I loved, would accept me if they knew what my father had done. I had spent so many years being judged for what my father had done that I feel I felt like I couldn't really fully connect with the people in my life because they didn't really know everything about me. And, and there was this fear that they would reject me if they did know. And that's ultimately what led me to tell my first and closest friend who I was. I was 18 and my good friend and I were on a field trip for school and we're sitting on a park bench and I decided that that was a good time to tell him. And, you know, I hit him with all these facts really quickly about, you know, my real name not being Zach and my father committing all these violent crimes and and his response, you know, because so many of the things I, I was saying seemed so outrageous was he just was kind of awkwardly laughing the whole time. And and in a way that reaction was a relief to me. So much so that he he literally rolled off of the bench, you know, in, in this kind of wild laughter uh you know, while I'm telling him my story. And it, it was a really great feeling for me to know that he would still, you know, be my friend, even though he knew everything that there was to know about me. And from that moment on, I was less apprehensive. I began to tell a few other, you know, close friends. And the vast majority of their reactions were incredible. And I felt so lucky that I had these group of people who who didn't care what my father had done, who you know really cared about me. And but they weren't always so positive. I I once had an experience where I, I told a very good friend after a long night of drinking. So maybe that should be a lesson to people that you, you shouldn't have very heavy conversations when you're drunk. But I told a good friend of mine who I was and what my father had done and his eyes just turned cold and he grabbed a knife and was swinging it in front of me and, and said, you know, I'd be doing America a service if I killed you. Wow. And I was so nervous and afraid that as he's kind of swinging this knife back and forth, I, I grabbed at it and I managed to grab the blade, but he yanked it out of my hand and he, he cut my hand open. He was so drunk that we kind of just stood there staring at each other for a moment and his face, the tension in his face started to release and he set the knife down on a table and he went to the bathroom and he came out of the bathroom and seemed to have forgotten the entire event. So I knew that even people I was close with could potentially have really negative reactions to this. Well, I'm so glad in spite of the drunk friend with the knife <laughs> that the first person you told accepted you and listened to you and sounds like embraced you just the same, almost in a moment of levity, because I imagine that dissipated the fear and allowed you to begin on the journey of opening up. When I first started speaking, I had this idea that I wanted to go out and, and change the world. And as I get older, I realize more and more that you know, that's not necessarily possible, not in the sense that I think many of us think it. The only power that we have is the ability to control and to change ourselves. And I think one of the greatest lessons that I've learned over time is that as much as people may be motivated to, to go out and do things to try and change the world, that ultimately the only thing we can control is ourselves. And the effect that the implications of our beliefs has on the rest of the world. How would you describe your feelings about your father as we have this conversation today? Where are you at with the reconciliation of your past and, and your father? It's a very complicated question to answer because I know that there are two things that my father wants most in this world. He either wants to be able to get out of prison and or he wants to have a relationship with his family. I haven't been in communication with my father, certainly on a regular basis, in 18, 19 years. And I know that he suffers because he doesn't have a relationship with his family. And some part of me feels guilty because I know that I can ease that suffering. At the same time, you know, I have made attempts to to be in communication with him through phone calls, through email and things like that. And unfortunately, it just turned out to not be a healthy interaction. 
my father became hyper-focused on the fact that I was no longer a Muslim. And, and I try to share with people that I didn't leave Islam because of what my father did. I, I knew that what he did was well outside of mainstream interpretation of the religion. Nevertheless, I consider myself an interfaith atheist. You know, I, I've had the incredible pleasure and, and privilege of working with religious leaders all over the world who, who recognize that, you know, the problems that we face cannot be solved by a small group of people, by one particular kind of people, that it that it requires, you know, a large group of, of diverse people to tackle the issues that we face. But, you know, in my father's case, I think there are times when I feel 100% confident in the idea that I don't ever have to speak with him again. And then there are other times where I think maybe it is possible with regard to whether or not I you know, forgive him for his actions, I, I think at a certain point in my life, I realized that if I wanted to do something positive with what were the worst experiences of my life, that I would have to let go of much of the anger and resentment that I felt towards him because of the impact that his actions had on my life. You know, I, I don't think that I can or that it's my place to forgive my father for the way his actions affected so many other people. But for me personally, I knew that my only path to peace was to forgive my father for what he had done to me. You have been through layer upon layer, certainly beginning with your father, years of bullying. There's obviously something within you that has allowed you to persevere and evolve and change and just live on the other side of all of these things from a place of empathy and love and curiosity and acceptance. What do you think that thing is within you? Well, I would say first that I don't think that there's anything inside of me that is uh, particularly unique or special that other people don't have. The things that mattered to me were how do my beliefs affect myself and the rest of the world? I want to live a life that causes the least amount of harm to others as I can. And so really what my goal has been in my adult life is to try to help others understand how their choices matter and that they, they don't just matter to themselves or to their loved ones or to even people only in their community, but how those decisions can affect people on the other side of the planet. You said something beautiful that I read I'm convinced that empathy is more powerful than hate and that our lives should be dedicated to making it go viral. What would that look like in the world? I guess your dream in a sense, if, if that was put in action. I think when we live a life of empathy, we do just what I was talking about. We try our best to understand how the choices we make affect others. And when we do that, it allows us to become better people. It gives us the opportunity to to change ourselves, to make the world in the image that we hope for it to be. One of the greatest lessons that I learned from being bullied was empathy, what it was like to be judged for things that I could not control. And I think if we all lived our lives with a little bit more care for not just the people around us, but for the world, that certainly we would be much better off. You are amazing, and I am so grateful that you found the courage to tell your story years ago and are continuing to share it and that this podcast can be a part of that. I'm going to link in our show notes to your book, The Terrorist's Son, A Story of Choice, so hopefully people can learn more about you and your story and your message. Finally, we're going to end with something we do at the end of every show called Rapid Fire. So super simple. I'm going to throw out a question or a statement and you just fill in the blanks, whatever comes to mind. Okay. Favorite food? Oh my, that's... God, you hit me with the hard questions already. Um, you know, my mother has got a lot of traditional family recipes that she makes. I, I'd have to probably say one of those. Binge-worthy show. I just got done watching six seasons of Schitt's Creek, uh, which I found to be a very sweet and very funny show. So I've been recommending that to a lot it's of people. so good. So good. I know. I, I love Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. They're just incredible. I love everything about it. <laughs> Favorite curse word? Well, fuck. I would have to say that that is probably the most versatile word in the English language. And uh, yeah, that's the one I'd choose. Fuck yeah. 
best way to spend a Sunday. Uh, best way to spend a Sunday. I I love getting to be out in the yard with friends, you know, having drinks and just spending time with each other, playing yard games, I'd say. What yard games? Yeah, like lawn games, just, uh, you know, cornhole or, uh, you know, all the different kind of outside games that, that people play. Yeah, that's why I asked, because I love cornhole too. In 10 years, I hope to be. In 10 years, I hope to be living on a farm with my own gentleman garden and, you know, perhaps someone to love and to be with, hopefully, for the rest of my life. I hope that for you, too. And I can envision it now. Thank you. Happy, happy birthday, my new friend. Thank you very much. Be well. Take care. And yeah, I hope you hope you get a cake by the end of the day. I hope so, too. And I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for the opportunity and and for the work that you do. This has just been wonderful getting to know you a little bit and to have this conversation. Right back at you. Thank you. Take care. You too. Today's interview supports the Zach Ibrahim Project. Working with Masterpiece International Nonprofit, they are currently focusing on one of Zach's loves, gardening. Their goal is to help people who have lost their incomes and savings during the pandemic. They teach them how to build small gardens and how to upkeep them for sustainable living that feeds their families and takes the burden off the money they would spend on groceries. You can learn more about Zach and his projects at Zach, that's Z-A-K-E-B-R-A-H-I-M.com. You can also find his book on Amazon, A Terrorist Son, A Story of Choice, which I highly recommend. We will link to everything in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and be well. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.